Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. So turn to the book of Ezra, please. Uh, Ezra, uh, for those of you um, who are new to Fullness, we... We believe fully in embracing the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And as a result, we preach through different books of the Bible. We'll preach through topics and and themes as well. But right now, we're doing a a study through the book of Ezra, which... um, It's a challenging book. I don't know if you've read it all and gone on to the very end, but you're going to find some challenging stuff. Uh, in this book, but we believe that all the Word of God, all the Bible is breathed on by God and is helpful. It's valuable. And so we want to not avoid tough passages, but uh, try and preach through God's Word. And now we're in Ezra uh, chapters 4 through 6. Scott and Gabriel have taken us through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Just a reminder, I don't want to get too bogged down, but the history is really important for you to kind of hang on what's going on. So uh, if you'll remember, after the time of Solomon, uh, long story how we got there, but after the time of Solomon, the nation of Israel splits into two. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, to the south. The northern kingdoms are called Israel, and the bottom are called Judah. Um, And sometime... Around 700 BC, uh, Assyria invades the northern ten tribes and destroys them. And they ship people out and they ship some other people in, and the people intermarry, and the nation of Israel, those ten tribes, are basically lost forever. Uh, the people that intermarry, the people that become all part of that area who have been shipped in and shipped out. They're known as Samaritans. We'll see those later in Jesus' time, the early seeds of what becomes the Samaritans. And then the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they're eventually overrun by the Babylonians. Um, 586 BC, they're overrun by the Babylonians. They're carried off in captivity. The Babylonians have a different kind of way of doing things than the Assyrians who took people out and put other people in. Uh, They just ship them out. They just take the best and brightest. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Now, some 50 plus years later, they're allowing some people to come back in and they're rebuilding the temple. And that's what we find in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra uh, spans about a hundred years. You wouldn't know it by reading it, but it's about a 90 to 100 year book, these 10 chapters. And it's the rebuilding of the temple under a guy named Zerubbabel, actually not Ezra. Um, most people would say Ezra rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't actually him. Ezra, we're going to get through chapter 6, and Ezra is still not even here yet. He's not even on the scene. He'll show up in chapter 7, which we'll look at next week. But some of that history is important to understanding what we're going to see in chapters 4 through 6. So Scott led us up to where 
they're rebuilding, they've laid the foundation of the temple, and then now they have an altar built where they've started offering sacrifice, but the temple isn't actually rebuilt yet. Just the foundation, just the altar, and chapters 4 through 6 are going to span about 20 years, and they're going to finish rebuilding the temple, they're going to dedicate it, and they're going to offer sacrifices, and they're going to have their first Passover, which is where we're going to end today at their first Passover, which is um, really, it's the early reflection of what becomes the, the Lord's Supper, communion, our, our, our time with him, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He was celebrating Passover with his followers, so we'll end our story today there. Um, so we got the background, we good? Up until now, everybody, any questions? I don't know that I could answer them, but that kind of gives you an overview. Uh, a number of years ago, it was about, I think, 2016, there was a, a movie, um, I, for those of you who are culturally um, astute, um, I don't want to say relevant, but um, uh, the same director who did Dune did this movie called Arrival. Arrival was a science fiction movie. I, it's a genre I like. Don't judge me. Um, I, I enjoy reading science fiction. Uh, I enjoy movies about science fiction. It's an unusual movie, really, where uh, aliens are coming to Earth. They need, uh, we need a linguist to go figure out how to communicate with this superior um, race. Um, it's always funny to me too, by the way, side note on science fiction movies where this really smart superior race comes and we have to figure out how to communicate with them. Seems like they should figure out how to communicate with us. We're the idiots still on earth. But so we send a linguist and there's a large part of this movie where she's communicating, trying to figure out a language, how to communicate. And then there's this other story going on about her and her daughter. Um, this uh, entire second thread that's taking place about her and a daughter who, and spoiler alert, but this was, movie was in 2016. If you haven't seen it, I figure you're not going to see it. So I'm going to just spoil the whole thing for you right now. And I know TV's not going to see it, so I'll just give you the rundown TV. Anyway, um, they've got these threads going on, and you're thinking the entire time this is a flashback that she's experienced because the little girl dies in her um, memory and what's going on. And at the end of the movie, what you actually realize is that it's a future event, not a past event. The whole thing with her daughter and her is in the future, and she's having to make a decision. Am I going to make the life choices that's going to give me a daughter who's going to have some sort of fatal disease who's going to die. I'm in this moment, and that's part of the whole alien interaction. Uh, but it, it's, it's confusing while you're watching it because you're thinking something's in the past when it's actually in the future. It's a literary device to help kind of capture you into the story. The point being, and I do have a point here, the point being the same thing's going to happen in chapters 4 through 6 of Ezra. You're probably not going to read it and look at the king's names and think, oh, Artaxerxes, he doesn't happen for another 30 years. Most of us don't know that. But the first letter you see in chapter 4 is about Artaxerxes stopping the building of whatever's going on, and Artaxerxes isn't even king until the time of Nehemiah which is going to happen much later. You may be asking, why did 
Ezra, we assume Ezra is the author of this book, uh, also wrote Nehemiah and is generally attributed to writing First and Second Chronicles as well, in case you didn't know. Uh, so he's, he writes a large section of the Old Testament. Why did Ezra include a letter that's going to come from 30 to 40 years in the future in this section? And it's a literary device to show us this. Opposition to the things of God is continual. It happens. It's nothing new. It's nothing that won't take place again. It's something that's continual. And Ezra is trying to point out to us, I think, the reader, us, that when Nehemiah comes and starts rebuilding the walls, he's going to get opposed. When these people are rebuilding the temple, they're going to be opposed. Everything that God does, there is an enemy who stands against and opposes. I'm not over-spiritualizing this passage. I think that there's a point here for all readers and followers of God to embrace this truth. Because if you don't embrace this truth, you'll come up with a version of Christianity where everything is roses. Everything is prosperity. Everything is health. Everything is God has a design for you where you'll never have any problems if you become a follower of Christ. The truth of the word of God from beginning to end is this, that there is an enemy who stands opposed to everything that God stands for. You are now a part of God's family. He will also stand against you. I'm not going to read all of 4 through 6. I entrust because some of them are letters and, and letters writing back and forth. We'll see why in just a moment. But here's the idea that I want us to see as we look at different passages. First, expect there to be resistance. Expect resistance. And that's kind of the whole intro here to, to help you and me continually understand that things are going to oppose us. And not just us. It's really the works of God. The enemy is going to stand opposed. And in this passage, I think there are at least three different ways that the enemies, so to speak, of God stand opposed. And I think there's some of the same tactics that, that the enemy will use in your life as well. The first is this um, temptation to compromise. This temptation to compromise. Here's what happens in the story, then I'll kind of apply it to us today. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin... Remember, Judah and Benjamin, they're the southern two tribes. They're the ones who have come back. The nation of Judah uh, has come back. Heard that the exiles, those returning from Babylon, were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, look at me for just a second. Let me give you the, the lowdown here. Uh, the, the Samaritans, the northern kingdoms, have been back a while. They're established. The exiles in the southern kingdom are just coming back in. They're having to, their, their nation has been decimated. They're having to rebuild. But these guys who Assyria replanted, that become known as the Samaritans, they've had some time to come in. And they're coming down and saying, hey, look, guys, we've got the resources. We've got the time. Uh, we're not having to rebuild our homes. You are. Um, let, let us help. Let us help you rebuild this temple. You need our help really. So let us, 
let us help you. And by the way, we offer sacrifices to your God, same God, and we've done it ever since the king of Assyria, this Esarhaddon guy uh, was king. We've been offering sacrifice to God. Now what they're not saying is this, we also sacrifice to these other gods all over the place. They're not saying he's the only God we worship. He's, they're saying we worship your God among the many others we worship. Do you think everything old is new again? Everything new is old. Whatever the saying is. I mean, same thing is taking place in our society where people say, yeah, 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 I worship your God. Well, I also worship this and I worship that. And We are constantly being tempted to compromise. I think it's one of the biggest schemes of the enemy really in our lives to try and make us not deny God because we sit here today. I mean, you, you, you came to church this morning and you're not going to sit there probably and say, no, there is no God, there is no Jesus, there is no this, there is no, I'm going to reject God. That's probably not your biggest temptation. Your biggest temptation, I would say, is probably this subtle lie of the enemy that says, yes, but you can do that and this, and you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't you serve a God who forgives? Don't you serve a God who's merciful? Don't you serve a God who's just love? That's what he is, is love. That's all he is, is love. And as a result, we are constantly being pressed. I, look, I may just be preaching to myself today. I just know that in my own life, it's, it's not the direct attacks that trip me up. It's the, it's the subtle ones. The ones that say, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just, it, it's not that bad. You can do this or that or this. You can pick your own this or that. I'm not going to tell you all mine. I'm, I'm, I reveal stuff, but not everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they, the nation of Israel, they say, but Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. They make a stand to say, no, I'm sure we could use the money. I'm sure we could use the help. But we're going to reject it. Because this is God's command for us. This is what he has called us to do. Just two weeks ago, I read about this guy uh, in, in um, France. His name is Ricard Plaud. I'm going to guess that's French. Um, I'm going to try my best French impersonation. <laughs> Ricard Plaud. Um, he built a, a model of the Eiffel Tower out of over 700,000 matchsticks. 24 feet tall. Took him eight years to build this Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. Now, there's so many questions that are unanswerable. Please, don't even kind of throw them my way. I don't know why you give your life to this. But what I do know is that in the construction of this, he was aiming for a world record to go in the Guinness Book of World Records on the tallest matchbook, matchstick structure ever built. You try saying it. Um, 
it's phenomenal what he did. The problem is the Guinness Book of World Records has a standard for what kind of matchsticks you can use oh. to build this structure. Um, without go, I'll go into the details because I think it's hysterical. Uh, you have to buy matchsticks that are commercially available, which means they have to have the actual match lighting part on the end that you either have to cut off or scrape off and then build. He thought, I'll just buy matchsticks from the company and ask them not to put the ends on so that I'll save time not having to scratch it off or cut it off, and then I'll just build it from there. And Guinness said, no, no, no. You have an advantage over everybody, other, uh, all the other idiots in the world who have tried this <laughs> and thought this was a, a worthy accomplishment of their lives. Of course, he pitched a French hissy fit and said it's not fair, but they rejected him nonetheless. Point. Compromise can cost you. You may think, I'm giving my life to this, but a small compromise when it's like a a level or a plumb line in the biblical sense, at first it doesn't seem like that big a deal. You're just off level a little bit. And then, but the further you go in life, the further that off level line will look. The further you go from that decision, which probably wasn't that big a deal early on, Now, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, your life is a wreck. My, my, My contention is this. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, today, today, I'm gonna ruin my life. I just don't think it happens like that. I think the the way they got to the ruination of their life, so to speak, is they made compromises way back when that just led to another compromise that led to another compromise, and then they ended up in the ditch. No one takes a drink of alcohol thinking they're going to be addicted and give their life to it. No one takes their first drug thinking, oh, this will ruin my life. No one looks at an image on the internet or talks with a person who's not their spouse or uh, takes money from their office, uh, whatever. You just go back to something. Very. I just don't think people wake up thinking, this is it. They got there through a series of compromises, and it's the scheme of the enemy that will uh, just trap us. But we have the ability to expect, to know, I think to foresee in some ways what the enemy's tools are against us. If you look even all the way back into Genesis, the enemy's attack on Eve, it it was more of a subtle compromise than a direct attack, uh, is my contention. And that he uses it still the same today. When they didn't compromise, the next tool that came at them was this attitude or this spirit of discouragement. Then the people around them set out, next verse, I've, verse 4 in chapter 4. Then the peoples around them, again, these are the, the northern kingdomers uh, who become the Samaritans. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. I could have put discouragement and fear, but I think they walk hand in hand. This, this, I just can't do it. I can't win. I'm afraid to go on. I'm discouraged. My, am I really making a difference kind of attitude? And that's, some of you are facing this today. 
you're facing discouragement. Marriage is a challenge, people. I married the greatest woman on the face of the earth. You may think your wife is the greatest. Sorry. I married the greatest. It's t- She's living with me. It makes it a challenge. It's got its moments. And, and for people who don't understand that two people trying to occupy the same space is, has some challenges, it can get discouraging. You're thinking, is this going to get any better? I love my life. I'm not saying, I'm just saying people get discouraged over parenting. The number of parents I've heard who said, you know, if I had to go back and do it again, I probably wouldn't have children. You laugh, but it's so true. I mean, I've been in counseling sessions where, not your parents, any of you here, I know (laughs) none of y'alls would ever say that. But there are some who would say, I would choose not to have kids. Listen, jobs are tough. Church is tough. Life is tough. Why? Because there's an enemy who stands against us. And his, his schemes are lies. And he tries to use fear to come upon us and to try and get us discouraged. Again, this past week, uh, just to show you how relevant this is, Christianity Today came out of with a a large study report where they uh, looked at thousands of churches across America and they were studying the impact of COVID-19 on the American church. Now, four years later, and we're coming up, believe it or not, on the four-year anniversary of me being like number 28 in the state of Alabama to get COVID, uh, we're coming up on that anniversary date. Um, Four years later, they're they're looking at what was the effect on the church? What happened within the context of churches across America? And they come up with about six or seven different conclusions about how COVID impacted America and impacted the church mainly within America. But one of the biggest one is the discouragement and the exodus among leaders, among pastors and leaders. Here's what they say in this report. The COVID-19 pandemic created a monumental challenge for American churches that precipitated a leadership crisis in many churches and for many pastors. While many leaders showed tremendous courage and compassion amid the initial uncertainty, they tired over time, especially as loneliness and weariness set in. And those churches where leadership weakness was already present, they're saying, either in individuals or in church structures, the pandemic exposed it sometimes with devastating consequences. Um, The reports of uh, pastors taking early retirement or leaving the ministry is, is, is pretty huge. Why? Because they got discouraged. They got tired. They got fearful. Um, The report um, stated that these were the main reasons that church leaders resigned, quit, left. Uh, Infighting over politics was number one. Uh, Remember 2020, last election, and we've got another one coming up? But infighting over politics drove many leaders to just say, this isn't worth it. I can't navigate this. Uh, infighting over health care policies. Just remember four years ago, wear a mask, not a mask. 
all of that infighting over health care policies. Um, it, especially these first two, I just want to say, talking to pastors around the country, these were not minor things. They were not minor things. And I, I would remiss, be remiss to say we had people leave our church over our decisions in both of these first two categories. Um, that we didn't take a certain stand over politics and we didn't take a more firm stand as their, whatever side you want to be on, on either one of these or our health care policies as well. Um, and so pastors said, I'm just not going to fight this anymore. This is, I'm, I'm done. Loss of people who quit going to church. Change in, their change in job description from being a pastor to now being an administrator and a tech, technology expert. Uh, all, all churches suddenly became online churches. You know, we had to move, our, our online presence was, um, how would I say it? Oh, pitiful. Uh, that'd be a good word. Our online presence is pitiful. We put a little camera up and did a Facebook Live. And by camera, I mean like a phone or something <laughs> that we uh, broadcast our service Facebook Live. Because we're an in-person church. And uh, that's what we were. So, but we had to go from that to getting services out to people because we were closed down. Technology, it, it totally changed. We went from a church where 30% of our income was online to now over 90 to 95% of our income comes in online as a church. Most of the giving. I, I mean, everything changed. And as a result, a lot of pastors who are my age especially said, you know what? I'm going to give this to the young guys to navigate ahead. So now there's all of this early retirement, a lot of even younger middle-aged pastors who just said, there are other jobs easier than this one. Why? I, again, discouragement and fear over long periods of time is heart-ripping. It, 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 it comes to a point you're, you're thinking, now, praise God, fullness is not like this. Really, the people that left our church, very small, very small numbers. People who fought over this kind of stuff, I didn't experience the same thing. I mean, to a measure, but not at all at this level. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. What I'm trying to say, though, is this. The enemy, if he can't get you to compromise, he'll discourage you. And get you afraid. He'll use any technique of lying, fear, intimidation to quit you from pressing forward in the things of the God. And that's what happens here. Continual discouragement. And then there is outright opposition. Uh, they hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So for a long period of time, they're trying to outright opposed. That's what happens in the letters that happen in chapters 4, 5, and 6, even though some of that opposition is future-based. Uh, but there are letters going back and forth. Remember, uh, if something went bad, there was no, you couldn't like uh, call him up, hey king, um, or FaceTime, or no, I mean it was a letter writing campaign uh, back then of sending, bringing back, looking up different records to different kings, here, here's my point in, in all of this, which I hope you'll um, gather, is that the enemy's techniques are not new. They're, they're still the same. We are trying to build the house of God 
for worship of our, through our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, to our Father God. We're, we're trying to all build temples, individually, corporately. We should expect opposition, discouragement, temptation to compromise. Peter says it like this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I've always loved this verse, this idea, this truth that this is not strange. This is not unusual. I mean, Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. Excuse me, have peace. In this world, punctuation does matter, doesn't it? <laughs> you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Uh, we, we're overcomers. We don't have to be discouraged. We are going to have troubles. We are going to have opposition. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience attacks from the enemy. But don't be discouraged because we have a Lord who's already overcome. Do you know what, what that makes you? more than an overcomer. Because he overcame, as Paul says, you're more than overcomers in Christ. The late John Wimber used to say, I heard him preach one time, he preached his sermon, and I'm not quoting this exactly, but the illustration kind of fits. He thinks that most Christians, when they come to know Jesus. They're taught that it's like they get to go down to the harbor and get on this cruise ship called the King of Kings. And it's this, they think in their mind it's going to be this luxurious cruise ship that they're going to experience life. And they go down to the harbor and what they find instead is this worn, powerful, but worn battleship entitled King of Kings that they're called to serve on and not to be served. It's an expectation. Know that the enemy's going to stand, stand against us. And that leads to the second point is that they just simply persevere through opposition. How do we keep going? Just keep going. Johnny Erickson Tatata said, it's only in heaven that Kleenex will go out of business. <laughs> How do we keep moving? We just keep moving. Through the pain, through the suffering, through the opposition, through everything else. Here's how they did it though. One of the ways, which I found encouraging, chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. It says, now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet. Oh, by the way, both these guys have books under their own name later. Uh, I know the Old Testament is tough to read at times because it's not put in chronological order. Um, and, but you can find these guys later. A descendant, a widow, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. How did they keep pressing forward? Well, the prophets and preachers came out and said, keep going. Keep, they encouraged one another. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and uh, Yeshua, son of, I can't even read these names, Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were there with them, helping them. An encouragement, preaching over them, prophesying over them, saying, keep 
going. And then it, it turns only a couple of verses later, one chapter really, it says the temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So you think, wow, they just keep pressing forward and, you know, a couple, couple of weeks later they, they finished. Twenty years later they finished. There was a stop and start and a continuation of perseverance, but they kept pressing on until, until they got it done. James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. All right, how many of you wake up in the morning and say, This trial I'm going through, what a pure joy. This is so much fun. I'm having a great time. It's a shift, I think, internally where we need to encourage one another. This is not like the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's not that kind of Christianity. But it is a realization that the one we serve is greater than he who is in the world. That, that in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. If you didn't have this, you would not develop perseverance. I hate to use a running analogy, but I'm going to. <laughs> Only because, you know, it, people who... Um, talk to me about running they're like yeah I tried to run once I hated it it was miserable I felt terrible I'm never doing it again well why because they just hopped off the couch and said today I'm a runner and they go out and they start to run and they've never persevered they've never let the muscles of their legs and their lungs build up to where they can run and they can do it. Same thing, almost any exercise is this way. They did it. M many of us have no spiritual muscles because we've never persevered through the trials of life. I believe trials and difficulties and suffering are, are what God uses as the, the spiritual dumbbells in our life, so to speak, to build up our spiritual muscles. Okay, that's why we can consider it pure joy. Because this perseverance has to finish its work so that you can be, what? Mature and complete. Is it possible that we're immature and incomplete because we haven't persevered through trials and sufferings and hard times? Not lacking anything. Now, my, again, my contention, this may be a little harsh. I'm, I pray it's not. I'm trying to lighten it a little bit. Um... We want, to joy, we want to jump to the not lacking anything part. That's me. I want to live in the not lacking anything. Well, how do I get to the not lacking anything? Well, I've got to go through trials of many kinds because it's going to build my spiritual muscles up and I'm going to learn to persevere. And as a result, I'm going to get to the level of maturity Completion in him, not lacking anything. 
goes on and says in Ezra 6, just to finish off this chapter, and they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. This is the first time the Passover has been celebrated in at least, at least 70 years in the house of God because it was destroyed. It's been 70 years since the temple that Solomon built has been destroyed. And now this temple is being reinstituted and Passover is being celebrated. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites had returned from the exile, ate together, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So they press through, they build the temple, they celebrate Passover. We're coming to this next week and in the week ahead. I don't want to give all the cards away, but there's something radically missing in this story. Radically missing. We'll see it in the weeks ahead. Come back. Or read ahead if you'd like. I don't know if I should tell you this story, but I'm going to anyway. I, I'm trying to, every year I try to do something to kind of, as I'm getting a little older, to expand my mind. <laughs> so I joined, I joined a poem of the day club. I know. I, could I get any geekier than joining a poem of the day? I don't really appreciate poems. Um, my friend Dave... He loves poems. Um, Lynn and I have joked with Dave that when we're at a party somewhere and I want to leave because I always want to leave a uh, party early, I'll say to, say to Dave something like, hey, Dave, I really want to leave. Would you mind quoting some poetry so that this party gets shut down? That's my view of, that's my view of poetry right there. It's a party killer uh, in general. So I'm trying to expand my mind a little bit, and I came across this poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's called Oxmandius. Oxmandius. And here's how the poem goes. I'm gonna, I don't know if you can read it. I'll read it from up here. It says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. Anyone know what a shattered visage is? A broken, the head was broken off. So it comes to these two trunks, which were legs. A visage, a head, has fallen in the sand in between the legs. And wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. 
My name is Oximandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lonely and level sands stretch far away. Without getting too geeked out over this whole thing, Percy Bysshe Shelley was also the husband of Mary Shelley, uh, who wrote Frankenstein, for those of you. She was actually better known than him. But this poem stands as this classic look to me about the fruitlessness of power. This king had this statue built to him this king named Oximandius. And on the pedestal he says, my name is Oximandius, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Do you see the irony here? That all that remains is the trunks of the legs and the shattered face that's in the sand. And he's saying in his, look how I am the king of kings. Every opposing force to God will lie in shattered ruin one day. Every king that declares themselves as more mighty than he will bow before the king of kings and declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we come to communion, what we're saying among many things is that we serve the king. We receive his broken body which unlike a broken statue is healing, not declaring of a lost kingship, but a, declares of a kingdom that will never end. We're declaring that we are his and his alone and in the face of every opposition that comes against us, we'll stand. You may think that this poem, which I think is a powerful statement on uh, political kingdom, how they all fall, how they all stumble, how they all go down, it is even more relevant because the first Passover ever celebrated was in Egypt under the king known as Ramses II. The Greek way of saying Ramses II is Oximandius. This poem is about, most likely, the king who served, who was the king during the time of the Passover. I believe that his kingdom failed. His kingdom went down because a greater king was coming. We serve that kind of God. You may be coming here to this table today with things of brokenness in your life. Maybe there's tension in your marriage, among your family. Maybe there's healing in relationships that you need. Maybe there's healing in your physical body that you're crying out to God for. Maybe there's a burden or maybe there's a, a, a chain that you need broken off of your life of some sort of addiction or thought pattern or you need freedom in the Lord. Maybe there's, you're, you're praying to God about decisions for the I want to tell you this. Everything you need is found in God. He'll provide and coming to the table is a way of saying, I submit myself to the Lordship of God. May he move in might and in power in my life in the days ahead. Do not take this time lightly. 
Do not see this as merely some religious exercise that we go through. But instead, I want to encourage you to meet with God. Let him do his powerful work of both deliverance and healing and direction in your life. Lord, we thank you this morning and pray that as we come to the table, that God, we would in fact, we would in fact see you move. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to go to the cross on our behalf, to have your body broken and your blood shed so that we who were many can now be one, so that we who were unforgiven and distant from God can be close to Father God and forgiven for all time. Lord, I pray for every single person who's coming to this table that God, you would touch them by the power of the Spirit and that God, we who are followers of yours would declare your death until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.